Father, we pray that you will indeed, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of the Word of God, mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to put sin off by your grace, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, and to mimic him every day of our lives. As we open your word today, that word that you've exalted above your very name, open our eyes as well that we might see, open our hearts that we might embrace, and change our wills that we might choose your path. May we go from this place changed, transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. The new sermon series that we're beginning today is called A Faith Worth Following. It's taken from the book of 1 Thessalonians. A faith worth following. I'm referring to the faith of the people who lived in the city of Thessalonica, the people called the Thessalonians. Their faith is worth following. Now, sometimes when you make a statement like that, you have to admit that uh, people are exaggerating. You'll have many people who will say, hey, here's a great Christian leader. Follow him. Have you heard this guy's teaching? He's good. Have you listened to this woman preach? She's amazing. Have you followed this program? Have you done this? Have you, you need to do this. This is the basic, uh, the, the best model of Christianity that anyone could find. Do this. And sometimes we're intimidated and sometimes we try and we come back and we're disappointed because they exaggerated about the person. Sometimes they out and out lied about the character of the individual and we're indeed uh, very disappointed. But I can say to you, follow the faith of the people in Thessalonica because that's exactly what Paul said. Notice this verse that we're going to put on the screen. It's taken from chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul is writing to the church, and he tells them that they are indeed a model church, that their testimony has rung out throughout the whole land, the whole land of Greece, the northern part of Macedonia, the southern part of Achaia. The Bible tells us in verse 7, and you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Greek word for model is the word tupas, where we get the English word type. And that word means a pattern, an example, something to follow. Uh, when a tailor wants to make a suit of clothes, he chooses his cloth, he gets a pattern, and he puts it down on the cloth and begins to cut out everything that is extraneous. Gets rid of all of, this, uh, uh, of the uh, side, the, the things that are superfluous, and ends up only with the cloth and then fashions it into a beautiful garment. The better the garment, the better the tailor. The more praise he gets. And so we are indeed to follow this pattern. It's as though the pattern of the church of Thessalonica ought to be placed upon South Church. 
And we ought to cut away everything that's extraneous, superfluous, that's not needed. Get rid of the scraps. And then be formed into a beautiful garment for the glory of God, a church that follows the model church. It's not that we can be perfect, but we certainly need to strive toward perfection. It's not that we're going to arrive, but we need to do all we can to persevere and to make progress and try to mimic Jesus Christ. Now, how did this church get to be so great? Well, let's look at the background of the church at Thessalonica before we actually delve into the book of 1 Thessalonians. And for that, we need to go back to the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. Actually, we're going to start in chapter 16 for a moment, but the founding of the church in Thessalonica is chapter 17. So Acts 16 and 17 give us the wonderful background when the Apostle Paul was used by God to start this amazing church. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. And he's being sent out by the church from Antioch. Now, this map that I have of the journey, second missionary journey of Paul, shows us the territory that he traversed. The first missionary journey, he was with Barnabas. The second missionary journey, he's with Silas. The sending church is the church at Antioch. That's the lower right-hand corner, Antioch of Syria. And they begin to travel west and north, going through what is today modern Turkey. And the Bible tells us in Acts 16 that they went through Phrygia and the region of Galatia. Galatia is a territory. And when Paul wrote to the church, he was writing to the churches, plural, in the region of Galatia. Phrygia, as we learned from our recent trip to Turkey and Greece, is actually named, it's an elevated plateau named because it's frigid, it's cold, and it's called Phrygia, the place where it's really cold to live. Most of modern Turkey and eastern Turkey is being troubled by Islamic militants today, but the western part of Turkey is fairly safe, and that's where we traveled. So Paul gets into the middle region of Turkey there, of Asia Minor or Asia, and he decides to go east to continue in Asia, and God says no. He picks an alternative route. God says no. Paul's confused. And he ends up going all the way to what is western Turkey. You can see uh, the little port there of Troas, the far west of the land. And he finally arrives in Troas, not knowing exactly where he should go. And at night, he has a vision. And he sees a man from Macedonia. That's further west. That's Europe. That's the land of Greece. He can tell he's a Macedonian because he's dressed like a man from Greece. He looks differently. He's from the land of Alexander the Great and his father, King Philip, who reigned in that area of Macedonia and from there had conquered the world for Greece. Paul sees this Macedonian, and in the vision he says, come and help us. So in Acts 16, we read these words. Verse 10, Paul thinks, well, this must be the Lord's leading. He wants me to go west. And so they sail from Troas and go all the way to now European soil to the city of Neapolis. And this is so strategic. 
God said no for Paul to go east and said yes for Paul to go west. And history proves that the gospel went west to Europe and conquered Europe. And it was from Europe our country was born. And we have in our heritage the wonderful grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ that's the foundation of our civilization and is the foundation of our laws and of our society. Albeit we've gone far from that foundation. And you go to the east and it's not the gospel that it's the heart and center and foundation of their civilization. What a strategic change in that moment as God led Paul. So he comes to European soil. He goes from Neapolis, the port city, to one of the leading cities, maybe the leading city politically, and the leading city with regard to its connection with Rome, the city of Philippi. And you read about that in Acts 16, the conversion of the Philippian jailer, right? Lydia, the seller of purple, she's converted there's a demon-possessed girl who probably is converted, certainly has the demon taken out of her. And a, and a church is born in that wonderful city, that Roman colony of Philippi. It was a fruitful ministry, but turbulent. And Paul leaves Philippi and heads south and west, about 100 miles to the city of Thessalonica. By the way, Paul is traveling on an amazing road. It's an amazing highway called the Via Ignatia. Here's a picture when we were, here, when we were there in, in April. We took some pictures of this road. We actually walked on it in Philippi. And uh, here's a little headstone. It says the Ignatia Hadas, the Greek word for way. The Ignatian Way. And Ignatia, I think, was just the guy who founded it or paid for it. You know, I don't know exactly uh, what his name was. But it's a, a superhighway that goes from Constantinople in the east all the way to Rome in the west. Remember this. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Jesus was born just at the right time. And partly that's because the Romans had conquered the world and established the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. And they also spent a lot of money building roads. And when Christ came and the apostles, after the resurrection, got engaged and the church was born, they used Roman roads to take the gospel all over the world. Here's a picture of uh, some of the stones that we walked on. This is actually in Philippi. And apparently they didn't pay their taxes or the politicians didn't fix the potholes because the roads look pretty bad today. Uh, you and I can relate. When these roads were built, beautiful marble stones, maybe 20 feet wide, perfectly polished, all kinds of cargo traveling back and forth, way stations, rest stops along the way. Here's the road when it gets into the city of, this is still Philippi. The next picture is Thessalonica, and I believe this is underground. They found part of it that has gone underground. Most of the ancient city of Thessalonica is under the modern city of Thessaloniki today, so you can't see most of the ruins. This next picture shows an arch that went over the road, probably the entrance to the city of Thessalonica. In Paul's day, Thessalonica was the second largest city in all of Greece, second only to Athens. Today, Thessaloniki is the second largest city only to Athens. 
It's a cosmopolitan, metropolitan place, all kinds of languages and, and cultures mixing together. It's a place where there's prosperity and a place where there's poverty and all kinds of difficulty and all kinds of religions are found there. But this was probably the gate into the city. Paul would have walked through this very gate. It's a pretty, pretty amazing thing. About the only ruins you can see, though, in the city of Thessalonica are found in the center of the city, and this is the old Agora. This is the marketplace that Rome had established. You'll see a theater and an odium, and you'll also see the place where the Pultarchs, the city officials, would carry on their law and their business, and I think that's what is established here. If you got into trouble, you went to court, and this is where the city officials would reign. Interesting place, because we're going to see in a minute that that place is mentioned in Acts 17. If you're to go to the highest place in Thessalonica today, you would see this castle-like structure. It was built during the times of the Crusaders. It's an amazing place to see a view of the whole city because it's built on a hill. So you're at the highest place, and you look down, and you see this huge city of uh, a couple million people, million, uh, two, two and a half million, I guess it is, and you see the city port. It was a thriving port in Paul's day, and it's a thriving port today. And in the distance, through the haze, you can see Mount Olympus. And it's a pretty amazing sight. Paul would have seen all of these things as he came to this city. Now let's turn to Acts 17 and see what happened when he finally got into the city of Thessalonica. We read in verse 1, when they had passed through... Amphipolis and Apollonia, two small cities that probably didn't have a Jewish synagogue, so Paul bypassed them. You have to remember his MO, his modus operandi, method of operation, was to go to a large populated area and from there preach the gospel, build a church, and then go to another heavily populated area. So he bypassed these two small cities, cities that you can barely find today, and they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue, a large Jewish population. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he would go to the populated area. He was a Jew. He knew he could go to the synagogue on Saturday, on the Sabbath, and he would give it, be given an opportunity to speak. He has some rabbinical training. And he would take the Old Testament Scriptures... His message was rather simple. It had three points. He would take the Old Testament scriptures and show, prove, that the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again. His second point was to tell the Jesus story. There was a guy from Galilee who performed mighty miracles and preached amazing things. He was crucified by the Romans, buried, but he rose again, and he's alive. And his third point was this. Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. That's exactly what the Bible says he did. Verse 3, he explained and proved that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, that this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah or the Christ. And there's a very interesting Greek word in verse 2, the word reason. Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's what preaching ought to be. In fact, this Greek word comes from two Greek words, it's a compound word, dialogos, where we get the English word dialogue. Just taken from the Greek. It means to discuss. It means to debate 
It means to persuade, and I love the word reason. Reason with the congregation. All of our preaching ought to be taking the word of God and reasoning with you. This is true, and this is what it means. This is true, and this is how you need to respond. Do you get it? It's a dialogue. Are you getting it? And the preacher then ought to respond. If you're not, well, let me do something else until you get it. And then all preaching demands a response. The Bible tells us in verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. These were Gentiles who were disillusioned with polytheism, the multi-God system of Rome. It wasn't cutting it. Their lives were empty. They were searching for something true and something real, and they didn't see it in Roman society. So they came to the Jewish synagogue and heard about the one true God of heaven. And not a few prominent women, verse 4. Interesting comment. It probably means that there were some women in that day who were city officials. They had political influence and power. Or it might refer to they were prominent because of their wealth but also very influential and well-known. Not a few of them came to faith in Christ. Verse 5 says, But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot. I tell you, this sounds like the newspaper of the last few weeks. By the way, this happens in America still today. Many of the demonstrations we see on TV are filled with people who aren't so passionate about the issue. They're professionals who've been paid to arrive there, create a disturbance, maybe start a riot. They're a mob, and many of them are questionable characters. Well, these people had no integrity whatsoever. They didn't care about the reason, but they wanted to cause a riot. They were paid to do so, and that's exactly what the thugs did. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. Verse 6, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city officials. Where? To the very place we saw in the ancient ruins where the Pultarchs sat and controlled uh, city politics and maintained order and civility. They were shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world. Now they've come here. Jason's welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees. They're saying there's another king, this one called Jesus. And with a little bit of truth and a lot of bit of lie, they're trying to start a riot. Isn't it amazing when politicians and preachers and people wanting to persuade you to their point of view, salespeople, take a little bit of truth and a lot of bit of lie and say something that is not true at all. It's true that they were preaching about another king called Jesus. It is not true that they were defying Caesar and trying to overthrow the government. Jesus is the one who said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, right? The early apostles, the early church, appreciated the protection of Rome and in every trial case... Rome said that Christianity is legal and authorized. It was only until later that the persecution like under Nero and some of the other emperors really heated up. 
They weren't trying to overthrow the government. Yeah, they did talk about King Jesus, but he's the king who proclaims life everlasting. He's king from another country. And they were trying to get people to give allegiance to, to Jesus. They were against emperor worship, and they were against the polytheistic gods of Rome, but they weren't trying to overthrow the government. Verse 8, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. And as soon as it was night, under the cover of darkness, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And there are ruins. There's a Jewish synagogue today on the ruins of what appears to be the ancient synagogue, the very place where Paul would have gone. Now, they were only there a short time before people came from Philippi to cause trouble in, in that city or from Thessalonica to cause trouble in Berea. They just followed Paul. So Paul had to flee. He went 250 miles south by himself, leaving his companions in the north, and went to Athens. You can read about that in Acts 17. A brief ministry in Athens... His friends join him in Athens. They travel 50 miles west to the city of Corinth. And when Paul gets to Corinth, he has an extended stay in that city. And he says, man, what is happening with that fledgling church in Thessalonica? Paul was there less than a month. These are newborn babies in Christ. If they persecuted me, what are they doing to those guys? He was so concerned for them. And he mentions in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, I couldn't stand it any longer. So he sent his companions back to the north to see how they're doing. Timothy comes back with a good report. Paul, those people in Thessalonica are continuing to follow Christ. They think well of us, and they're going on in love and faith. And Paul was so excited, he sat down with pen in hand and wrote a letter to express his commendation to give them further instructions to let them know that persecution was going to be ongoing for a long time and to tell them that Jesus is coming again and the letter he wrote we call first Thessalonians let's turn to first Thessalonians and the remainder of the time we have we'll just get into the introduction but there's three things I want you to see that Paul tells this church three encouraging spiritual observations and wonderful perspectives for believers. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silas, also called Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. The very first thing he emphasizes is their location. And he basically says, you guys need to be bifocal, for you have two homes. Did you notice that? Verse 1. You live in Thessalonica. You have an earthly citizenship. You have a passport and a driver's license and a certificate that says you are Greeks and you live in this city. That's your earthly citizenship. But I want you to know you have another home, you live in another location, and it's in God. One of Paul's favorite phrases throughout the New Testament is in God or in Christ. And that's the phrase he uses to describe a true believer. Before you're a believer, you're outside of God. 
he says in Ephesians chapter 3. You're an outsider, Colossians 3. Once you believe you are placed in God, now you have a new citizenship, you have a new locality. I live in Lansing. I breathe in Lansing. I work in Lansing. Uh, I have family in Lansing and friends in Lansing and hobbies and recreation. This is where I live. I'm a citizenship of Michigan, or uh, I live in this state, citizenship of the United States. But I'm a Christian, so I am in Christ. The scripture that was read a moment ago, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. I'm in Christ. And that citizenship is even more important than my earthly citizenship. By the way, those who have citizenship in heaven will be from every tongue and tribe and nation. That's why we take the gospel everywhere to fulfill the Great Commission. In Thessalonica, you will have persecution. Severe suffering, verse 6 says, right? You guys are undergoing a horrible time of persecution. And in chapter 3, he says, you've, a, you've been appointed unto this. You're going to continue to have difficulty in Thessalonica. But in God, you are forgiven you are sanctified, you are justified, you are saved, and you have a heavenly home that no one can take from you. Remember, you're in God. Isn't that encouraging? In the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the chaos, the confusion, the immorality and wickedness of this world, I'm still bifocal. I have to be of this world. I have to be a light in this world and salt in this world, but I shouldn't be of this world. My citizenship is in heaven, and if I really want to be encouraged, I need to remember I am in Christ. That's what's encouraging. Every Christian has two homes, so to give them security and in the midst of their suffering, he tells them you may have an earthly address, but never forget you have a heavenly address. You're in God. And I have to say this, it's a, a bit of a technicality with the Greek grammar, but we mentioned it when we went through 2 Peter. Did you notice the end of verse 1 talks about being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? The, the Greek rule of grammar is if you have two names combined by the word and with only one definite article, the, so it doesn't say the God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It just says the God and Father and Jesus Christ. It means that the two people are the same. And that's exactly what you have here, although it's not as clear to see in the NIV. The original makes it abundantly clear. You are in the God and Father or in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a second definite article. They're the same person. Paul is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is God. And then he mentions two of his favorite words. This is his greeting, grace and peace to you. Grace is the fount. Peace is the stream. Grace is the source. Peace, the result. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're saved by grace, you have peace with God, a conscious understanding that you're right with him and reconciled to him. That is heaven on earth. Understand that, dear Thessalonians, as you suffer, you're in God, you're in Christ. 
Grace and peace are yours. That's their location. Secondly, notice their activity. They're not only in God, they're serving God. So Paul says in verse 2, we always thank God for all of you and mention you in our prayers. Why? Well, we continually remember before God and our Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, and hope. That's that famous triad of Christian virtues. It was John Calvin who said, this is a brief definition of true Christianity, faith, hope, and love. Faith is where we put our trust in God's word. We believe what we cannot see. We're confident it's true and it exists. Love is where we put someone else above ourselves and hope is where we take encouragement that although presently we're undergoing difficult times, the future is positive. We're optimistic because God has promises of conquering and victory and eternal life. But I want you to know that these virtues are not abstract. They are very active. They produce concrete results. Faith works. In fact, James says, if you have faith without works, your faith is what? Dead. Now, we're not saved by works, but the faith that saves works. It's a great statement. Once you settle faith and trust in Christ and you're saved by grace through faith, now faith is something very active. It has to work. Real faith has to produce. And love I see the labor that is prompted by your love. See, if I put someone else ahead of me, then I'm going to willingly serve them and work for their good. We use a phrase similar to that. I mean, if a wife is sick and she says to her husband, I need a drink, and the husband goes and gets a drink of water and comes back and gives it to his wife, and the wife says, thank you so much, honey. He says, ah, don't mention it. It was a labor of love. Now, that's a bit sappy. And if a husband said something like that, you know, it just wouldn't quite fit in. No problem, no difficulty. It was work, but it was a labor of love. The word labor here means to toil and sweat. It means to work until you're exhausted. It's not some frivolous little trip to the water fountain. They worked. Because they loved Christ and they loved the souls of men. And Paul was only in Thessalonica less than a month. Three Sabbath days. And he had to run for his life. He had to be smuggled out of town. But that was enough for the word of God to take root in hearts. And those people began to work for Christ and the church began to grow. That is amazing activity. And their hope? Well, in the midst of their severe persecution, they could look up, for their redemption draweth nigh, right? In every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, the end of the chapter speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Almost 40% of the book of both 1 and 2 Thessalonians talk about the second coming of Christ. 
Amazing, it's one of its major themes. Jesus is coming again. He'll set up a kingdom. It was a hope that was not something that, that they would merely guess at. It was not mere speculation about timing and all the occurrences, but it was, it was an encouraging promise that Jesus is coming again, and that hope motivated them to serve him. And then finally, I have to mention one other thing just briefly. You have their location in God, their activity is serving God, and their election, they're chosen by God. Now, we don't have time to get into this much, but I just have to be honest with you. I have lost patience with people who deny the doctrine of election when it is found all throughout the Scripture. I understand it's difficult, and I don't understand it. But I lose patience with those who deny the doctrine and try to excuse it away, or those who maximize it above proper proportion and distort it. I get tired with both ends. Because the Bible has so much to say about the doctrine of election. Remember Peter talked about it? And now Paul mentions it? And it seems like every time the doctrine of election is mentioned in the Scripture, it's not there to cause debate. It's not the issue that ought to divide the church. Someone observed that the doctrine of election, when used in the Scripture, is intended to foster assurance of salvation, number one. Number two, to prompt holiness of life. You're chosen of God. You belong to Him. Number three, to create humility. There's nothing in us that would cause God to choose us. And number four, to encourage witness. As God said to Paul in Corinth, I have many people in this city. You just keep working and they'll come. It's to encourage and uplift the people of God. It never violates human responsibility. Get that settled. But it still is taught in Scripture and we take great comfort to know we're chosen of him. And Paul says, I know you're chosen of God. How can he say that? Election is done in the secret counsel of God's heart. How can you know someone is elect? Well, he says in verse 5, because when we preached our gospel, it came to you with power. You received the message. The power of the Holy Spirit was working on your heart. And verse 3, you began to act. The faith, the hope, the love, it was all there. And verse 6, you began to imitate us. And you begin to imitate Jesus Christ. The Greek word for imitate is mimic. That's the Greek word. They became mimics. We'll do what you guys do because what you guys are doing is what Christ does. We'll mimic you in spite of severe persecution. They welcome the message with joy. And verse 7 says, because of that, you guys are a model church. You're a model church. And every other church needs to have a seminar here in Thessalonica to learn how to do church because this is how it ought to be done. The Apostle Paul warns them in 1 Thessalonians that hard times will continue. He commends them for following the Lord faithfully. He instructs them about how they need to continue to grow in grace. And he reminds them in every chapter that Jesus is coming again. Keep up the good work. 
I say sometimes we exaggerate Christian leaders far beyond their level of growth and sanctification. But we can't exaggerate this model because Jesus said, these guys are right on. There was a story of a man who was a keynote speaker at a banquet, and the guy who was introducing him wanted to make him really sound important. So he said, I I need to tell you that our keynote speaker tonight is a very capable businessman. He made $100,000 in the oil business. So what he's going to say, you need to listen to. People applauded. The man came up and said, well, I, I need to correct the guy who introduced me. He has a few facts wrong. He says, number one, it wasn't me. It was my brother. He said, number two, it wasn't the oil business. It was real estate. Number three, it wasn't $100,000. It was a million dollars. And number four, he didn't make it. He lost it. <laughs> I think you got a few facts wrong, don't you? <laughs> And sometimes when I hear preachers preach, when I listen to politicians, when I listen to salesmen, I'm thinking, you know, is this true? You might have a little bit of truth, but how much of it is error? How much are you exaggerating? How much are you just making up so that I'll buy in? I want you to know when you read the Word of God, it is all true. And you can believe it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be more like that church in Thessalonica in our faith, in our hope, in our love. And may the testimony of this church ring out throughout the whole world so that no one needs to go ahead of us and proclaim, market, persuade, exaggerate But the testimony of this church will go out strongly to those who know Christ and to a world that needs to know him. That's our heart's prayer this morning as we begin to study in Jesus' name. Amen.